did you think that the covid pandemic was the worst pandemic of history well considering it isn't technically over that may or may not be true what we know for sure is that covid definitely wasn't the first of its kind the world has been ravaged by deadly pandemics since as early as the peloponnesian war this puts the first recorded pandemic way back in 430 bc which is more than 2 and a half thousand years ago while these pandemics have been diverse in terms of the types of pathogens that cause them their symptoms and their modes of infection they have each left their mark on the world and have led to the advancement of science and medicine in one way or the other today on the season premiere of biomatch we take a look at some of history's most severe pandemics and learn a bit more about the pathogens that cause them Hello and welcome to the season premiere of Biomatch. I'm your host Mriganka, resident bionerd and genetics enthusiast. Today on the season premiere of Biomatch, we shall be breaking down five of history's worst pandemics. Without wasting any more time, let's get into it. For our first pandemic, we have the bubonic plague, more commonly known as the Black Death of 1346 to 1353. Now a quick Google search will tell you that the bubonic plague was caused by a bacterium known as Yersinia pestis and spread primarily through fleas. You will also find out that the symptoms of the plague include chills, fever, headaches, cramps, seizures and vomiting. But the most distinctive symptom of the plague was round inflammations on the body called buboes. These inflammations are what gave the bubonic plague its name. A little more digging and you'll find out that the bubonic plague caused no less than 3 pandemics and killed an estimated 50 million people. But perhaps the most interesting source on the Black Death is an Italian writer known as Giovanni Boccaccio. Boccaccio actually lived in Florence during the plague in the year 1348. His experience inspired him to write his book, The Decameron. a tale of a group who escaped the black death by moving into a villa outside the city though it is technically a work of fiction it includes a surprisingly detailed description of the symptoms here's an excerpt it first betrayed itself by the emergence of certain tumors in the groin or the armpits some of which grew as large as a common apple others as an egg some more some less What the author is describing here are the characteristic buboes or inflammations caused by the plague. Now, to understand the main biological aspects, we need to concern ourselves with two major elements: the pathogen that caused the disease and the effect that the disease had in the body. Now, for those of you who don't know, a pathogen is any biological agent that causes harm to its host. 
In the case of the bubonic plague, as we mentioned, this was Yersinia pestis, a non-motile, rod-shaped bacterium. You may have noticed I said non-motile. Pestis couldn't move around on its own, so it needed a vector or an agent to transmit it. This was primarily fleas, and the most prominent agent was a species known as the oriental rat flea. Now, whenever the flea bites an uninfected organism, the bacterium is secreted into the wound. Pretty sophisticated, for a flea at least. Once established, the bacteria in the body spread to the lymph nodes and multiply. The lymphatic system is a network in the body which deals mainly with the circulation and drainage of fats. Fortunately, the bubonic plague can be treated with the use of antibiotics such as streptomycin. Since it also spreads through decaying bodies of infected animals, proper sanitation can also prevent the spread of the plague. Now, one notable similarity between most pandemics, recent or old, is the fact that they spread mostly along trade routes. And they have a great impact on not only science, but also economy and society in general. In the case of the bubonic plague, a website called visiblebody.com sums it up perfectly. The Black Death swept through China, India, Persia, Syria and Egypt in the early 1340s and arrived in Europe via its ports several years later. By the time 1353 rolled around, Europe had lost around half of its population. Before we conclude our discussion of the bubonic plague, there's another topic I wanted to cover, one slightly more recent. If any of you know me, you'll know that two of the things I love the most are genetics and debate. And boy, what a genetics debate we have surrounding the bubonic plague. You'll notice I may have used the names bubonic plague and black death seemingly interchangeably today. As it turns out, many geneticists now believe that the Black Death wasn't caused by the bubonic plague at all. Rather, it was caused by a hemorrhagic virus. Now, there are a couple indications of this. The Black Death spread much faster than the modern plague does. There's also evidence that the Black Death spread from human to human, or sans flea. There are a few similar discrepancies, but the most interesting one has to do with the genetic mutation. The thing is, the Black Death left a quote-unquote genetic legacy, a mutation in survivors' genes called the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. A mouthful, I know. This mutation does not, and I repeat, does not offer plague resistance. What it does do is offer immunity from AIDS. As interesting as the debate is, the hypothesis hasn't been confirmed as of yet. Until then, I will use them interchangeably rather than spending an extra half hour rescripting this. Bear with me. But before we move on to our next pandemic, we have one small bit left to discuss. Considering the spirit of the season, we're going to be making note of some important things we learned from each pandemic. The bubonic plague actually introduced the idea of a quarantine for the first time. In port cities like Venice, incoming ships were required to stay anchored for a period of 40 days before their crews could enter the city. This period of time was called a quarantino, which is the source of the English term quarantine. 
Venice and Ragusa even established plague hospitals during the time. And well, if medieval sailors had the good sense to quarantine, you and I definitely should. Next one, many of you may be familiar with. Our buddy cholera is a staple in school biology textbooks. But in case you forgot to do your revision, here are the topper's notes that will get you the marks you need. Cholera is a disease caused by a bacterium called Vibrio cholerae. Vibrio because it's shaped like a cutesy little comma. Well, this cutesy bacterium has caused seven pandemics in the last 200 years. Cholera affects the cells lining our intestines, causing them to release excess water, which results in diarrhea, dehydration, and loss of salts and electrolytes from the body. Cholera spreads through contaminated food and water via the fecal-oral route, which roughly translates to <coughs> poop mouth. <coughs> Luckily, an oral cholera vaccine exists. And cholera can also be treated through oral rehydration therapy, zinc supplementation, electrolytes, and antibiotics. This basically replaces the salt and water lost from the body and the antibiotics fight against the bacterium that causes it in the first place. According to a research paper in NIH by William B. Greenow, wait for it, the third the beauty of ORT is that it does not require medical skills to administer, and it is inexpensive. Both of these features make it accessible to nearly everyone, regardless of location or financial resources. So, what's the big deal about cholera, right? We have ORT, we have a vaccine. Isn't this a non-issue? Well, not really. As I mentioned before, cholera caused seven pandemics. The seventh one took place mainly between 1961 and 1975, but the strain that caused it still persists. A World Health Organization article from 2018 calls cholera the quote-unquote forgotten pandemic. Here are some highlights from the article. Many people think of cholera as a 19th century disease. This is true for high-income countries, but elsewhere, cholera never went away. The current pandemic, the seventh one that has been recorded, has been ongoing since 1961. It is the world's longest-running pandemic. Cholera is endemic in many nations, 47 as of 2018. There is also the presence of cholera hotspots in many of these places. The WHO article also mentions that cholera is, quote, preventable and manageable. But the health sector alone cannot prevent and control cholera outbreaks. The best way to prevent cholera and other waterborne diseases is with the investment and maintenance of community-wide water, sanitation and hygiene facilities. And this was a quote from the article. They also continue to say that Peru, Vietnam and Senegal are examples of countries which have largely eliminated cholera outbreaks after investing in water and sanitation infrastructure and implementing targeted public health interventions. To quote Dr. Legros, the WHO lead on cholera, 
vaccine will not solve the cholera problem, but only buy us some time. Unless we plan mid and long term water and sanitation interventions, cholera is going to reappear as soon as immunity to the vaccine wanes. There are no shortcuts. Now, regardless, we've come a long way scientifically since before the cholera pandemics. Even in the darkest period, from 1816 to 1923, when the first six cholera pandemics occurred consecutively, scientific victories were being won. Late in this period, major scientific breakthroughs that led to the eventual treatment of cholera took place. The first immunization by Louis Pasteur, the development of the first cholera vaccine, and the identification of the cholera bacterium by Filippo Pacini and Robert Koch. And that's our greatest takeaway from this one, kids. I think our friend Will III put it best. The legacy of cholera demonstrates how basic science, when brought to the bedside, can save lives, reduce costs, and prevent disease. Pandemic number three is a real wild child, folks. Literally known as the deadliest pandemic, we have next the Spanish flu. According to My Happy Place, also known as wikipedia.org, the Spanish flu was an unusually deadly influenza pandemic caused by the H1N1 influenza A virus. Lasting from February 1918 to April 1920, it infected 500 million people, about a third of the world's population at the time. The death toll is typically estimated to have been somewhere between 20 million and 50 million, though it could have been as high as 100 million. This makes the Spanish flu one of the deadliest pandemics in human history. The H1N1 flu, also called the swine flu, affects the cells lining the nose, throat and lungs. And this causes a huge bunch of symptoms, including fever, chills and a sore throat. The flu virus is highly contagious. When an infected person coughs, sneezes or talks, respiratory droplets are released into the air and inhaling them can cause infection. Also, touching an infected surface and then touching your eyes, mouth or nose can also cause infection. And I know what you're thinking. It sounds a lot like Corona. So wash your hands, you dingus. Good old Wikipedia will also tell you that young adults had a higher than expected mortality rate due to the Spanish flu. Modern analysis has actually revealed why. H1N1 triggers a reaction in the body called a cytokine storm. To put it simply, the immune system goes into overdrive and basically starts to self-destruct. Now, since young adults, like me, have generally strong immune reactions, they are more susceptible to these deadly cytokine storms. In fact, COVID-19 also triggers cytokine storms. And this is one of the features that makes it so deadly. 
We do have an influenza vaccine today, but we almost had the wrong one. Let me explain. Viruses have always been tricky little things. And the H1N1 virus was too small to be spotted by microscopes at the time. So scientists like Richard Pfeiffer mistakenly identified a bacterium called Haemophilus influenzae to be the cause of the swine flu. This was because the bacterium was big enough to be seen and it was present in many, though not all, of the patients. For this reason, they started using a vaccine that treated the bacterium rather than the influenza virus. This vaccine did not make an infection rarer, but it did decrease the death rate. Now, one question remains unanswered. Why is it called the Spanish flu? According to the good folks at history.com, the Spanish flu didn't actually originate in Spain, but the news coverage of it did. During World War I, Spain was a neutral country. This means they had a free media. This free media covered the outbreak from the start and it first reported it in Madrid in late May of 1918. On the other hand, allied countries and the central powers had wartime censors. They covered up news of the flu in order to keep the morale high. Since Spanish news sources were the only ones reporting on the flu, a lot of people assumed that it originated there. The Spanish, meanwhile, believed the virus came from France and called it the French flu. So, I guess our lesson from the Spanish flu is an unconventional one. Nothing in the scientific world happens in isolation. Our ethics, societies, and even our politics play a part in how we deal with discovery and invention. For better or for worse, our perception of something as straightforward and universal as a deadly virus is molded by these factors. Especially in the current times of censorship and bias, let's make sure we don't lose sight of science in all its objectivity. Picture this. It is June 5th, 1981. The US Center for Disease Control or the CDC publishes an article in its Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, also called the MMWR, describing cases of a rare lung infection in five young, white, previously healthy gay men in Los Angeles. Doctors report that all the men have other unusual infections as well indicating that their immune systems are not working. Two have already died by the time the report is published, and the others will die soon after. This edition of the MMWR marks the first official reporting of what will later become known as the AIDS epidemic, AIDS being Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. Skip to December of the same year. At Albert Einstein Medical College in New York, pediatric immunologist Dr. Arya Rubinstein treats five black infants who are showing signs of severe immune deficiency, 
at least 3 are the children of women who use drugs and engage in sex work he recognizes that the children are showing signs of the same illnesses affecting gay men but his diagnoses are dismissed by his colleagues by the year's end there is a cumulative total of 337 reported cases of individuals with severe immune deficiency in the united states of those cases 130 are already dead by december 31st a little over 10 years later in 1992 aids becomes the number one cause of death for us men ages 25 to 44 since 1981 AIDS has been more than just a disease or even a pandemic. It has had a historical, social and political legacy. Not just a fight against the scientific unknown, but one against discrimination, prejudice and stigma. But before we talk more about its humanitarian implications, I have a job to do and that job is bio. So here we go, real quick. AIDS is caused by a retrovirus called HIV. or the human immunodeficiency virus hiv affects the immune system causing progressive failure that allows life threatening infections since the immune system of our body is what actually fights against infections and diseases these infections caused due to aids are usually the cause of death in an aids case while aids has some identifiable symptoms like fever chills rashes sore throat muscle pains and night sweats a website called hiv.gov says and i quote that the only way to know for sure is to get tested currently there is no cure for hiv or aids however there are many medications that can control hiv and prevent complications these medications are called antiretroviral therapy A frequently asked question is why is HIV so hard to cure? What makes HIV so sneaky is that it infects the very cells that are supposed to rub out or deal with viral infections. Furthermore, not all HIV infected cells are triggered during an infection. Instead, some of the cells go into a hiding mode or rest state. HIV drugs don't affect the HIV hiding in the resting cells. These cells represent a hidden reservoir of HIV. When treatment stops, the resting cells eventually become active. The HIV inside them replicates and it quickly spreads. This is why current HIV treatments don't completely cure it. Demographically, among the most susceptible for AIDS include MSM, which is men who have sex with men, PWID, people who inject drugs, and sex workers. Regardless, HIV can affect anyone, no matter their sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, gender or age. Especially considering that AIDS can be contracted in utero when a pregnant woman is infected. Because it is primarily sexually transmitted and disproportionately affects homosexual men, AIDS has historically been surrounded by stigma. and has even enabled science to be a weapon in the hands of oppressors let me give you an example according to avert.org the fact that homosexual acts are illegal in around 1/3 of the world's countries means that many msm can't access hiv services or seek treatment 
In another article, they mention that the provision of HIV services that are specific to the needs of LGBT people remains inadequate in many countries, as the needs of people from these groups are not given priority by governments. HIV data related to LGBT people is also grossly underreported, inconclusive or not reported at all. But the best way to demonstrate how the misinformation and stigma around AIDS is harmful to everyone and not just those most susceptible is through discussing the blood donation ban. If you don't know what that is, Many countries have laws, regulations or recommendations that effectively prohibit donations of blood or tissue for organ transplants from MSM. According to an article from AJMC.com, in America, MSM after 1977 were barred from donating blood between September 1985 and December 2015. At this time, there was a lifetime ban against donating. The lifetime ban remained until December 2015, at, at which time it was reduced to one year, meaning a male donor who had sex with another male had to abstain from doing so for one year if he wanted to give blood. As of April of 2020, however, the FDA has announced a relaxing of its restrictions on gay men being allowed to donate blood. This is in light of the corona pandemic. Instead of one year, if a male has had sex with another male, he need only wait three months to donate blood. The problem is that these guidelines have remained in place for years, long after processes exist to test blood products to determine if they are safe, no matter who donates. According to the CDC, all donated blood products are tested for HIV and other pathogens. John Oliveira of Garden State Equality, an LGBTQ advocacy and education organization, put it best when he said, and I quote, The FDA's decision to ease restrictions on blood donations from MSM proves what medical experts have been saying for decades, that this ban is not based in science but rather discriminatory politics. The FDA's policy change is a sign of progress, even if forced by the needs of the current crisis. But we must follow the science and continue fighting for a complete end to this archaic, demeaning ban. End quote. So, takeaway number four. In any argument, there will be the side which cites pseudoscience to defend what is really a bias. Don't let stigma overrule science. Listen to the facts. Our scientific solutions, unlike our often biased politics, must include everyone. Before we move to our next and final pandemic, a huge shout out to the website HIV.gov, who have a brilliant article called The Timeline of HIV, which I recommend that everyone go through. We've made it. It is finally time to discuss our last pandemic. Well, pandemics, because what we have next are the precursors to our protagonist. 
SARS-CoV-1 and MERS. SARS or SARS-CoV-1 to be precise broke out in China from 2002 to 2004 with regional outbreaks in North America and Europe. A total of 8096 cases from 29 countries including 774 fatalities were identified during the course of the outbreak. This puts the fatality rate for the SARS coronavirus 1 at 9.6%. According to a research paper in NIH, genetic characterization suggests that the introduction into the human population occurred from civets or other mammals found in live animal markets of China, much like COVID-19. This is something we will talk about a lot later this season. the crossover of diseases from other animal species to humans a process called zoonotic transmission which is common to all the covid outbreaks mers or the middle eastern respiratory syndrome coronavirus on the other hand was first identified during september of 2012 in a saudi arabian patient with respiratory failure In comparison to the rapid spread of SARS-CoV, MERS-CoV continued to circulate and produce sporadic outbreaks both within the Arabian Peninsula and in countries where infected patients have traveled. There have been 2266 confirmed cases of MERS and 804 fatalities. This puts the case fatality for this particular virus at a whopping 35.5%. Significant molecular and serological data point to dromedary camels as the source of transmission into human populations. In fact, you'll be surprised to know that SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 and MERS-CoV are just three of the seven known coronaviruses, but they happen to be the most infectious and most dangerous ones. The full form of SARS is actually severe acute respiratory syndrome. Like COVID-19, both SARS and MERS affect the respiratory system. According to myoclinic.org, which is probably the best website to find symptoms of anything, SARS usually begins with flu-like signs and symptoms, fever, chills, muscle aches, headaches, and occasional diarrhea. After about a week, signs and symptoms include fever of 100.5 degree Fahrenheit or higher, dry cough, and shortness of breath. While we're going to be spending enough time this season on the effects of COVID-19 and its viral fam, I really wanted to take this opportunity to discuss some of the differences between COVID-2, COVID-1 and MERS. Why were SARS and MERS not as big of a deal? Well, as it turns out, COVID-1 and MERS have a higher case fatality rate than COVID-2. But COVID-2 or COVID-19 is more infectious and transmissible than the former. So much so that the total number of fatalities are much much higher because it spreads a lot more. Before we go a fun fact, MERS affected more men than it did women, and the reason for this is actually quite interesting. Since most women in affected areas which is the Middle East and the Arabian Peninsula wear burqas they basically had pre-existing PPE kits which protected them from the virus to a greater extent than men who don't wear burqas Finally our takeaway from SARS and MERS and even COVID-19 is a lesson in progress 
Forgive me for being a bit meta here, but what we've learned is that history can repeat itself. And it's important for the scientific community to take what we have learned from past experiences, what worked and what didn't, and use it to face emerging problems. In short, the lesson from SARS and MERS is basically the point we've tried to make through this entire episode. In every bad situation, there is hidden an opportunity to learn. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you learned as much as I did. As always, I'm your host Mriganka and this is Biomatch. New episodes every Sunday. Follow us on Spotify and Instagram for updates. Stay safe, keep learning and don't forget science is for everyone.